I'm Tess Vigland, and as we work, we're making connections. Networking isn't just about finding your mentor, a person to help you move up in the world, or a role model. A lot of times mentoring is finding your tribe, so you find places where you have a commonality with other people. This is As We Work from The Wall Street Journal, a show about the changing workplace and everything you need to know to navigate it. Finding people who help you be the best you may not be the first thing that comes to mind when you hear the word networking. But making those connections that help you find your next job doesn't always mean hanging out in a room full of strangers, making a lot of small talk with business cards changing hands. It means finding people who embrace all the parts of you, Today, we're going to explore ways to make that process more productive and even fun, all while making genuine connections. No sweaty palms. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. We've heard a lot over the last couple of years about this idea of bringing your whole self to work, that you should be able to show every aspect of who you are in the workplace and not have to hide things to fit into a corporate box. But that's often easier said than done. Even as we celebrate Pride Month and members of the LGBTQ community talk openly about their lives, it wouldn't be difficult to find stories of people struggling to hold back parts of themselves in the workplace out of concern for their careers. And it's even harder when it comes to networking. How do you bring your authentic self to something that often seems so surface? How do you get beyond that feeling that networking is just about asking for something? How do you make those deeper connections that might help you grow and propel you into new roles? As our first guest learned when they became an accidental expert at networking through advocacy at work, the results of living authentically can be life-changing, both inside and outside the office. Chris Mosiah is a vice president of digital platforms at JPMorgan Chase. Chris is also black, queer, and non-binary, uses they-them pronouns, and co-chairs a firm-wide gender expansive council, among many other leadership roles. Chris, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You are a vice president at JPMorgan Chase, but your journey to getting there is, uh, I would say, pretty unique. So, so let's start there. Where, where does your career journey begin? So my career journey actually started um, in the military. That was my first real job, my first real paying job. Um, I joined the U.S. Navy at the age of 17 in 1999. And I joined during Don't Ask, Don't Tell. So if I can say this, it was really interesting because... Aside from like putting up my right hand and saying that I swore to defend this country against all enemies, foreign and domestic, I also right after that swore that I would not engage in any homosexual activity. You literally had to say that out loud. Yeah. And it must have been that important as uh, defending the country because it came right after it. 
Well, we, we are here to talk about networking. So, yeah. so I have to ask, are you still in touch with anyone from your Navy days? Of course. Yeah. Those are lifelong friends. Um, as, as a matter of fact, most of those individuals were just fine when I came out. Um, it was different than like my actual family and friends. When I, so I've had more than one coming out, of course, right? Um, I came out as, as queer and then I came out as non-binary um, years later. Um, but when I came out as queer first, I lost more friends and connections with family members at the time than I did with any of my naval colleagues. What was the point when you did feel safe to come out and be your true self uh, at work? At work was completely different, right? When I came out as queer, oh, it was was gut-wrenching to tell people. And then when I did, I almost wished I didn't. It was like stepping out of the closet. And then I came out and it was like, God, I wish I never did that. Why? It wasn't received well especially in my community at the time, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm an 80s baby, 90s kid, especially in the Black community, it was difficult. You gain a little bit more courage later on in life. And so I did that when I came out at work. I actually came out on the chase float of 2019, um, Pride, New York City Parade, which was oh the 50th anniversary of Stonewall. Huh. Yeah, I came out as non-binary to my colleagues, what, by just showing up on the float? No, I was on the float and I screamed it out. I'm not binary. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody was like, that's wonderful. <laughs> and gave me hugs. And I was I had this big um, flag, this big queer flag. It couldn't have been a better time for me. I'm, 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 I'm flying a queer flag and I scream I'm non-binary. Like, what? That's the best way to come out. <laughs> I might have the wow. best coming out story the second time around. So you've experienced both being out and not out, being truthful and not so truthful mm-hmm. in the workplace. Yeah, can you just describe how that how that felt? Give us a a picture of the before and after. In the beginning, I think the before was carefree, in a way. Um, sometimes it's not as hard as one may seem to just hide who you are, especially if you're hiding it from yourself. That gets harder because you're starting to really understand who you are. And um, now you're playing a role, right? I cared about what people thought, their perception of me. I also have locks that are incredibly long. And so you can imagine, right? I'm Black, I'm in corporate, I've got locks and I'm in a men's suit. I just felt like I, I might have been a little too much for people. I was like, well, my skin, uh, you know, I'm not, I don't see too many people that look like me on this floor. And so, you know, I looked in the mirror at myself a lot. And slowly, I began to want to educate people. I felt like if I educate people, then maybe they'll get it and they won't look at me the way that they are. And I think in that need to educate people came this need to want to advocate. How did you go about that process of education? What did you do? Educating myself or educating others? No, educating others. I started with a panel called Gender Identity, Gender Expression. I got some help um, because I was new to the firm. I might have been there a year, if, if that. To J.P. Morgan? Yeah. I said, I need help, but I want to put this put together this panel. And it turned into a viewing party 
um, of, I believe, six or seven locations, right? Wow. Yeah. So you did this panel that was a networking event. I think you could call it that, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I'm curious what role networking groups have played in helping you be your true self at work. You need support. It takes a really mighty person to do some of these things without support. I don't know if I know anyone who has done it without support, right? Networking isn't just about finding your mentor, a person to help you move up in the world or a role model, if you will. A lot of times mentoring is finding your tribe. So you find places where you have a commonality with other people. Chris, if you didn't have those networking opportunities that that came from being your true self at work, where do you think your career would be right now? I'd be a software engineer sitting with my head in the computer, just doing nothing but coding, not Hmm. raising my voice. And I would still be a young associate instead of a rising up and coming executive. You have described yourself uh, as black, queer and non-binary. Does that play into what kind of networking groups you gravitate towards? In the beginning, yes, right? I needed, and we, a lot of, a lot of us are like this. We need to find a commonality. And I love my Black people, but a lot of times my queerness blocks that, that connection. And so I gravitated more toward the pride groups. There was a spark that was like, you need to fight for the even the underrepresented inside of this community, which a lot of times is the T. Which is transgender. Yeah. yeah. I wanted to represent that underrepresented community. And, and I think that's where my leadership came into play. I want to be somebody that people can see and say, this person is in senior leadership. This person is an executive. This person is you know, at some point at the top, and we can be that too. What are some networking lessons that that you would share with the younger generation as, as they're coming up through the ranks and perhaps not finding a world as different as perhaps you'd like it to be? One thing I would say is find your people. Yes, you're there to do a job. You may not find your people where you sit every day. But make sure one thing is make sure you go to a company that has affinity groups. If they don't, I would think twice about going to that company. Make sure that that company's policy is about being able to be your authentic self. If it's not, I would think twice about going to that company. How do you figure that out? How do you see that or not? You know, what's funny is when you go for an interview, a lot of people don't understand that you're not the only one in the interview. They are too. So as they ask you questions at the end, when they say, do you have any questions for us? You better have questions because they're in the hot seat too. put them right back in that hot seat, not just about the skill set, but you want to ask them about the culture of the company. What does this company look like outside of where I work? You may find it to be totally different. Chris, I wonder if you you have any kind of specific story that stands out where either you felt like you passed along uh, some some networking wisdom or that the networking you were doing with someone else was really valuable to you that you kind of look back and go, oh yeah, that was really important. So it's very hard to pinpoint one of them, but I will talk about a time where it was, it was early 2019. I was on a panel 
it was an MD panel, so managing director panel, which is mm-hmm. at the time I was an associate. So we're talking three levels above me, three very high levels above me. And I was standing in for an MD who couldn't make it. And just talking about, so the tagline was being your authentic self. <laughs> and I remember saying, I'm the baby on this stage, but I hope one day I am like you all. And I am this great MD that other people can look up to. I can almost cry. I will never forget how they leaned and looked to their left at me. And I'm looking right at them in succession. And they all said at the same time, you will. And that lit a fire in me. And I'm still getting there. And, and, and they'll watch me. They will watch me do it. Well, Chris Mosiah, it has been an absolute delight to speak with you. And I thank you for both your advice and also, of course, for your service. Thank you. Thank you all for having me. It's been a pleasure. So if being yourself sounds great, but you're still afraid of heading to those big impersonal networking events, good news. You can host a dinner party instead. We'll have some advice from a networking expert who's found a better way to connect if being in a crowd gives you the heebie-jeebies. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So authenticity is the watchword of the day when it comes to professional networking. And if you're from a marginalized community or any community and feeling pressure to conform instead of being your authentic self, our next guest has some timeless advice for breaking that mold, making real connections and putting yourself in the catbird seat when it comes to your career. Dory Clark teaches executive education at Duke University's Fuqua School of Business and Columbia Business School. And she is the best-selling author of The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World, among other books. Welcome. Hey, Tess. Good to be here with you. So convince me here. uh, Why do I have to network? Networking is so fun. No, it's not. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I'm going to change your mind. Okay, please do. So I actually think that most people, when they dislike networking, what they actually dislike is a caricature of networking. Hmm. The idea of going to some cattle call reception and making uncomfortable small talk with strangers and trying to convince themselves that this is what I need to do to get ahead in my career. And and it's awful. (laughs) I actually believe that that is the smallest and least useful facet of what constitutes networking. Hmm. Fundamentally, networking is about building relationships. It's about making friends. But I, I guess I feel like, and maybe this is the kind of the cliche that you're talking about, that that you have to like put on this face to network, that you have to 
fake this certain identity. To me, it also is, feels very awkward because I feel like everyone is there to get something out of somebody else. Is this also part of that cliche? Kind of. What you're talking about is just fundamentally short-term networking. I need a thing. I'm going to go out tonight and get a thing, you know, whether that's a yeah. sale or an investor or whatever. And that is distasteful to normal, kind people for obvious reasons. No one, no one likes being approached in that way. And frankly, if you are a good person, you don't like approaching others in that way. Okay. <laughs> Networking is not about something that will get you business next week. You know, you get lucky sometimes, you know, maybe, but that's, that's not how anything normally works. The reason you do networking is not to get a result tomorrow or next week. I actually have a, a concept that I share, which I call no asks for a year. And what I mean by this when it comes to networking is that it actually feels pretty distasteful sometimes if you meet someone, you think you have a good connection, and then, you know, a week later or a month later, they hit you up yeah. with some request. Yeah. And it's some, you know, politically sensitive thing. Oh, Tess, you know this person. Can you introduce me? Yep. Or, you know, whatever it is. And you kind of feel used. And after that, it's never really the same because you're like, oh, well, he just wanted X, Y, Z. I want to hear a little bit more about how you network because uh, so, so you've got this rule, no asks for a year. Um, how else do you go about this? And... I'm also curious, were you always a natural at it? So I wouldn't say I've always been a natural at networking, but it does give me a lot of pleasure and has always given me a lot of pleasure to be able to bring people together. Where this really came into play for me was about eight years ago. I moved from Boston to New York and I just had this ominous realization, which is that I knew plenty of people in New York, but they were people that I knew just through business, mm. but I didn't have any, any friends. friends yeah. So I started to take initiative and it really made me think back to something that my mom used to say when I was a little kid, which is if you want to get an invitation, you need to give an invitation. Mm. And so I started organizing dinner gatherings and I would bring together these people who were kind of business acquaintances or maybe they were friends of friends. Sometimes I would actually find a colleague who was a bit of a connector themselves. And I'd say, well, for this dinner, I'll invite four people and you invite, you invite four, four people. Oh, I love that idea. Yeah, so we'd, we'd mix our networks together. And I would do it a couple of times a month. And over the course of years, I now literally have hundreds of people, somewhere probably between six and 800 people who have been through my dinners. Did you find that once you did uh, give the invitations, you also got some? The vast majority of people, either because they are too busy, too self-involved, don't think of themselves as hosts. Or mm. they, they don't think of themselves as the kind of person who is able to invite yeah. you to something. So they might say thank you, but no, I never got invitations from them. Mm. But what you have to recognize, you can't be mad about this. It's almost like venture capital investing. You have to recognize that for every 10 investments, whether it's an investment in a company or in this case, an investment in, in a person... Yeah. Eight of them are probably going to go nowhere, but a couple of them are actually going to turn into something amazing. You're a member of the LGBTQ plus community. I wonder how does your identity play into how you network, if at all? 
the best networks are both wide and deep. And so yeah. um, sometimes you you really want to go for for massive breadth, but other times it's really fun for people and kind of an easy way to connect when you're able to unite them over a commonality. I remember once I had a, uh, a gathering for female journalist friends. So if only you had been in my city, Tess, I 100% well, would have invited Dory. you. Let me know when you're in town and you'll be you'll be the anchor. You got it. I'll reach out. I'll tell everyone, Tess in town. You got to come. But I've, I've had those. I've had uh, gatherings for friends in certain industries. You could do this for alumni. Uh, but I, I also love to, to bring people together. And uh, in Miami, I discovered over time that, you know, I mean, hashtag Miami, uh, I had gotten <laughs> to know a huge, like a, a ginormous number of gay men. And a lot of them didn't know each other. And a lot of them uh, had moved down from New York and they were kind of sad. They're like, oh, my friends are in New York. I don't have enough friends. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, I can fix this. And so I recently had a, a party. I'm not kidding. It was me and 16 gay men at my house Whoa. because I just wanted them to all meet each other and make friends. And it was, it was actually a big success. Did you have a theme? I, call, I called it the Gay Guy Gala. <laughs> they were delighted. I want to go to that. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> that sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> um, you know, one of the other kind of side effects of the last two years is that there has been a whole reevaluation of work-life balance, right? Um, you know, you, you have to be able to shut the door and the laptop, go home. But there's also this argument that we need to bring our whole selves to the table, that our whole selves belong in every aspect of our lives. Where do you land on this? It seems like that could be a mixed message that could get very overwhelming. People often will draw these elaborate, erroneous conclusions about, oh, you know, bring your whole self to work means that right. it's perfectly okay to be bawling at the office and telling people about, you know, <laughs> oh, your latest drama with your boyfriend. It's like, no, don't be right. a moron. That's not what it means. Come on. <laughs> but what it means is that you should be comfortable at least sharing the contours of your life with people. Of course, we need to be professional. But, you know, some wonderful research that was done a few years ago by uh, Kenji Yoshino at NYU and the Deloitte Leadership Center for Inclusion talked about the phenomenon of covering at work, the phenomenon of people downplaying elements of their identity at work because they think that it would be mm. somehow be looked mm -hmm. down on. And this could be anything from... Right. Uh, a gay guy not having a picture of his partner on his desk or maybe uh, someone who's going through a divorce pretending that everything's fine. But what studies have shown is that the act of, quote unquote, managing your identity actually is really psychologically stressful because you're just constantly like, well, how did that land? What are they thinking? And it just takes away from the work experience when you have to do that. And unfortunately, the study showed that 66% of professionals actually do some form of covering. This includes nearly half of straight white men as well. So uh. I think the more that we can eradicate that and make it okay for people to just take off the shackles a little bit, let's not have to stress every minute about what other people are thinking about you. Like life should not be like junior high. Let's try to make it not that. Well, so again, I kind of want to go back to this idea that 
that I think is, again, this cliche that you brought up at the very top, which is, you know, you start networking with what do I want and who helps me get it, right? How do you turn that around and approach it in maybe the opposite way? I assume it's much better to say, what can I give than rather than get, which of course was your mother's advice. Really, the way that I think about effective networking is it is just taking the neediness out of yourself. There can be no neediness. Networking should never be thought of as something that will get you any kind of outcome in the short term. If you do need something, there are legitimately times you do need something. You know, you need a new job or whatever. That's not when you meet new people. That is when you go to your old friends. That's when you go to people you already know and you say, can you help me? And if they can't help you, then you can say, well, is there anyone you know that can help me? We have to play the long game in our networking. And that leads to far better relationships and far better results. Well, Dory Clark, I want to thank you for reminding me that dinner parties can be fun. I'm going to go arrange one because it's lovely out now and we can all be outside and and uh, just have an authentic conversation. That sounds really nice. It's going to be amazing, Tess. You're going to rock it. <laughs> okay. Well, next time you're out on the West Coast, you, get, you, you got to come to one. I love it. It's a deal. All right. Thanks so much, Dory. Thank you. Okay. So now you've made some connections. You've got some folks you can lean on. But let's be honest, networking can only get you so far in the career process. And if it feels like sending a resume these days is like dropping your whole life story into a black hole guarded by a computer algorithm, we'll have some tips for breaking through. Join the Wall Street Journal at the Future of Everything Festival on May 21st to 23rd in New York City where diverse global newsmakers share unique perspectives on navigating a changing world. Immerse yourself in live performances, explore pioneering technologies, and indulge in the city's inventive culinary scene. As a podcast listener, enjoy 20% off current ticket rates with code PODCAST. Visit wsj.com foef podcast to secure your spot. And finally today, our pro tip. Writer Heidi Mitchell joins us with some advice for getting your resume into the hands of an actual person at the company you want to work for. Heidi, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So basically here, we're looking for ways to get around uh, the, the, the robot overlords that are screening our resumes, right? Because they can make or break us. Can you give us a sense of how this works? It's something like 98% of Fortune 500 companies are using applicant tracking systems, ATSs, which a component of them is an AI, and it's going to just read your resume before a human does. And you can imagine why we got to this place, because now with all of these job boards, you could just with one click apply to lots and lots and lots of jobs. These companies are getting lots and lots and lots of applications, and it's just unreasonable to think that a human is going to be able to sort through all of them. Okay, so what are the basic rules here to make sure that you have a, a Goldilocks resume? Not, not too many keywords, not too few, but just right. It depends is always the answer, right? But right. 
From the recruiters that I spoke to, they say they have a minimum of 10 keywords that they're looking for. And then there really is no maximum, but you don't want your resume to read like a word salad of just things that you think are keywords. So as long as it reads legibly, then you're probably fine. One thing you should think about though is that there are different words or even acronyms for the same job. So like CFO, they could have put in chief financial officer and not CFO. And so if you put in just Hmm. CFO, you might not make it past that first gatekeeper, which is the AI. And how should you display those keywords? Is it just like a list at the top or do you like sprinkle it through? It's good to have them at the top because some do reward you for having them prominently. Other ATSs reward you for having words around them, so incorporating them into sentences. So you can do both. You're kind of covering all your bases. And you also say not to forget the unexpected, uh, the thing that might not be obvious from the job description. Can you give us an example of that? Yeah, the big one that stuck out to me from speaking to these experts was location. We think about, you know, a lot of jobs are hybrid or they're just completely remote now. But if they're if they're not, or if they're you're a salesperson for a regional area, then you don't have knowledge of that region or live in that region. So sometimes a city or a state can be considered um, a keyword. So the lesson here is it, it is possible to get through an AI. You just have to have the right keywords in the right places. It's definitely possible, but there are some tricks. So a lot of people will just take the entirety of the job posting and maybe alter it a teensy bit and plunk it onto their resume as their objective. And wow. that will get you like a 100% score on the AI, but then the human reads it's like they're just like gaming the system. Worse are people that take that and then they put it in white type so that the AI reads it, you get a 100% score, you make it to the next. And then the human reads and it's like, you don't have any of the skills that we need. And then you might even get blacklisted for that company. It's a bad hack. Don't do it. Don't do it. All right. Heidi Mitchell, thank you so much. Thank you. Maybe you're starting to send out resumes because you're feeling a little unmotivated. Maybe you've been doing the same job for 10, 15 years and you're wondering, is that all there is? Maybe you're ready to try something new. So next time, we're going to explore the paths to finding new opportunities inside your company and how some employers are making it easier to want to stay. And before we go, we asked you all for your best piece of career advice. Here's one from Nate Holdstein of Greenwich, Connecticut. When feeling frustrated about things, I like to take the five front, five back approach and think to myself that in five years, this moment probably isn't going to matter too much. And then remember five years ago what was going on and realize that, yeah, it doesn't matter too much. We'll be sharing more of your advice throughout this season, so keep them coming. What is the best career advice you've ever received? Email us at aswework at wsj.com and let us know, or leave us a voicemail at 212-416-2394. Again, that's 212-416-2394. And any messages you do leave may be used in the podcast. As We Work is a production of The Wall Street Journal. Charlotte Gartenberg is our producer. Amanda Llewellyn is our development producer. Scott Salloway is king of the dad jokes. 
and our supervising producer. Jessica Fenton is our sound engineer. Our music was composed by Hansdale Sue. Kateri Yoakum is the Wall Street Journal's executive producer of audio. I'm Tess Vigland. See you next time. <laughs>